everybody, Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says for you. I'm in a really good mood today, don't know why. It's totally incongruous with the poem I want to talk about as well, so we'll see how that goes. I want to respond in this episode to a workshop I got to do yesterday, yesterday morning at 7am Melbourne time, which is 6pm New York time. I got to dial into a workshop run by an organization called Brooklyn Poets. And Brooklyn Poets run a whole bunch of different things. I got to do an in-person workshop with them many, many years ago. They're a really, really cool group. And they have a bunch of different workshops that you can sign up for no matter where you are in the world, which is a little bonus of the age of Zoom. So the workshop that I did with them yesterday was called prosody and its decolonization wow why the hell did you sign up for that alice yes great question (laughs) well i you know i have i guess a relationship with the study of poetic structure and form that's i i don't know if this is something that you would share but i have a bit of a love-hate thing with it i feel like there's so much to know about rhyme and meter and structure and form that I just have no idea about. At the same time, I have this feeling like, you know, it's that approach of like, if you don't know your scales, then you can't really go off and play jazz. Like if you're going to play with form and structure in your own work, then you should probably know the rules. So yeah, that we'll get into that a little bit more in a little bit but I was particularly interested in this workshop because it used that word decolonization in its description, which is a word that I feel kind of gets thrown around sometimes to sort of signal, oh, this workshop has a level of wokeness that will make you feel good about yourself. But actually this, the content of the workshop was so good and so like genuinely interesting on that level. Um, I just learned so much. It was, it was a great way to start the week. Great Monday morning. So yeah, this is a huge shout out, first of all, to Brooklyn Poets and to let you know that on April 19th, 2021, there's going to be another workshop. They don't quite have it up on the website just yet, I don't think, but it's going to be with Terence Hayes, who is the author of a book called American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Probably my favorite poetry book at the moment, if not of all time. And if you don't know anything about Terence Hayes, I will link once again to the podcast interview that he did on Commonplace with Rachel Zucker. He's amazing. He's so, so amazing. And I can't believe that you can just sign up for a workshop with him from anywhere in the world. So get on that. But also don't buy a ticket before I do. So yeah, this workshop I did was with a poet called Jay Desprande. And Jay was just so smart and so incredible. And so I'm going to be leaning quite a bit on Jay's definitions here to just set up this idea of prosody. The way that Jay defined that term was just really simple and beautiful. He said, prosody is how rhythm gets organized in language. How simple is that? That just opens it up completely, I feel like. If we want to get slightly more technical, we're talking about which syllable is stressed and which is unstressed in a line, in a word. It's pretty simple. 
And so when we're talking about prosody, we're talking about rhythm, stress and unstressed. And Jay also described what, how rhythm works really, really well. He said, rhythm is the experience of time in the body. I mean, that's pretty great. So we spent a bit of time looking at a whole bunch of different poems and deciding where the stresses were and what rhythm they were using, which is something that I feel like if you go to a poetry workshop kind of anywhere in the world, you can find that kind of discussion and that kind of study. And the way that I first approached that was to read Stephen Fry's book, The Ode Less Travelled, which is a great book. And it definitely subscribes to that argument, you should know all this before you start writing poetry and, you know, before you can fully appreciate poetry that you read. But yeah, this idea of decolonization really questions all those assumptions. And the ideas that were brought up were that knowledge of things like prosody can be used as something that sets up a hierarchy. People can dismiss work because it seems to have no relationship to these rules. And also they seem like set rules. They seem like things that have been around forever and ever and and that there's a right answer. But even when we were talking about stressed and unstressed syllables, there was a whole range of responses from people in the group about how they read certain lines. Then you bring into it things like accent and regionality of English. And then you bring in the idea that well-known quote-unquote English forms are actually layered over non-English forms, like the pantoum is a Malaysian form, the haiku is obviously Japanese form. Um, so when you actually start to question where this stuff comes from, it starts to get a lot less straightforward. You know, I've, I've been thinking about this word colonization and what that actually means when we're talking about the structure of poetry. And I was thinking it kind of works as like rules imposed on a body or bodies by someone or people that have a set definition of what's right and wrong or a different definition of what's right and wrong. And yeah, I just think it's, it's cool to think about these rules and go, well, who decided these rules? Where did they come from? How do they work now? Are they still connected to power in terms of like what we deem good poetry? in terms of what we deem worthy. And I guess the last thing I wanted to include is that came from this workshop was we were talking about whether you need to have a deep understanding of how poems are put together if you're going to write poems. And Jay's argument was that basically language is going to do what it's going to do. Rhythm will appear whether you have a deep understanding of this stuff or not. So basically, no, you don't need to have an understanding of this stuff. But yeah, this comes back to my love-hate relationship with it. Like, I feel like it's good to know, but also not necessarily your passport to, you know, poetry gold stars and um, honorary PhDs. So all that said, 
the poem that I wanted to dive into today, because I'm in such a great mood, is uh, Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop for Death. I don't know why I've never talked about Dickinson directly on this podcast before. Ever since I did the Coursera course, Modern and Contemporary American Poetry, back in 2012, Dickinson has been a real North Star for me. I guess I just feel a bit weird talking about her because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Australian poet writing in Australia and I'm kind of like, well, should Dickinson really be that important? Like, she's she's part of the American canon and, yeah, I guess I feel slightly uncomfortable about that. But, yeah, there's no getting away from her work, I think. And I guess I wanted to attempt a bit of a close reading of this poem mainly because it's it's kind of an easier choice than a lot of the other ones and also because yeah as we were looking at, looking at this yesterday in the workshop I thought there is so much going on just in this that shows how this knowledge of structure and rhyme and meter informs meaning so instead of reading the poem for you I'm going to include the reading from Terence Davies' 2017 film A Quiet Passion as a huge cheerleading moment for that movie. It's so good. You have to watch it. I haven't seen any movies that have dealt with the lives of poets that is anywhere near what this movie does. It's it's just so, so good. And Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon, I mean... Yes, we all we all know and love her as Miranda, but like Jesus Christ, she's so good in this movie. And this is her reading Emily Dickinson's poem because I could not stop for death. Because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove He knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of grazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet, only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity so the first thing that you probably notice when you hear that is it's a strongly iambic poem iambic being an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable something that Jay pointed out in this workshop yesterday is that there is this echo that sits at the end of 
the lines with three beats, which he called a virtual beat. So because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Da-dum. So the first line sets up an expectation of four beats. Then when you get three in the next line, you unconsciously insert this virtual beat. It's rhymed mostly in a, a fairly straightforward way. And everything is pretty settled and straightforward up until the line, or rather, he passed us. We talked about this in the workshop as like the volta in the poem, the, the rhythm changes and it's halfway through the poem. Something happens here. To me, this feels like the moment of death. Even though the whole thing, the whole poem is kind of talking about this journey that the speaker takes with death, that feels like a moment of passing through into another world. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I should start at the start at the beginning. Because I could not stop for death. There's so much packed into that one line. I could not. Is it that the speaker's unable to stop for death? They want to die, but they can't bring themselves to do it? Or is it because they're not allowed to? The poem begins with this word because, but it's actually a question. There's a question in that first line. Why? Why would you want to stop for death and why can't you? Then death kindly stops. Death is presented here as a male figure, but, but a kind male figure who's in a carriage and drives slowly. He knew no haste. In fact, at the end of the second stanza, he's described as having civility. There's a coldness about that word that's really interesting as well. It's very matter-of-fact description of what it is to die. The third stanza I feel like has a really interesting setup. It starts off by talking about children at recess, then fields of gazing grain, and then the setting sun. To me that feels like birth, life, and death. And Dickinson refers to a ring in this stanza as well, like a circle, a cycle maybe. And then we have that Volta that I referred to, or rather, he passed us. I think in that line, I'm not entirely sure about this, but I think in that line, the he is referring to setting sun, not to death. So this to me seems like a, a pretty typical Dickinsonian jump where you're just like, what, wait, where, where are we? I don't know what just happened there. Um, or rather, he passed us, the setting sun passed us. And then things get very cold. The dews drew quivering and chill for any gossamer my gown, my tippet only chill. All of a sudden the speaker's lost all the, the trappings, the clothes, the things that identify her, um, we'll say her, and she's in kind of like the underworld, I guess. And then they pause. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. It's interesting the use of pause because to me, like this seems fairly obviously, this stanza seems to be talking about a grave. But yeah, she doesn't say we stopped before a house, it seems. She says we paused. Is the carriage just pausing to let her out? Or is there something else going on there? In either case, I guess it's... it. It reinforces this sense of like, this is a journey that just keeps going. It's just happening. It's 
it's civil, it's matter of fact, it's nothing personal. The, the entire poem feels relatively impersonal and cool, I guess. And then the last stanza, since then to centuries and yet feels shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. I thought by the time I got here that I would have something intelligent to say about this stanza, but I'm completely flummoxed by this. Like, I don't know what the horses' heads are. I don't know why we end with a dash. Um, uh, yeah, I'm lost. I'm lost. <laughs> Typical uh, Dickinsonian inscrutability. Yeah, I got nothing. If you got any ideas, please uh, tweet me or something. I just don't know what's happening here. I have a copy of the John Leonard Seven, Cent Seven Centuries of Poetry in English book, and I love it because it's a secondhand copy and there's somebody else who's been through and done close readings and they've done a close reading of this poem. And what they've written for this last stanza is, time is meaningless once you're dead. Fair. That's... Yeah, I get that. That sounds right to me. Like so many of Dickinson's poems, it just, it seems so straightforward when you first read it and then you actually start looking at it and it's just like, there is so much going on here. And yeah, I meant, I mentioned the dashes and this is going to come up in an episode that I'll hopefully put out in a couple of weeks, but the, there are dashes all through the poem, very little other punctuation and as will come up in this episode, there's a visual element here as well. There's a lot of capitalization. There's those dashes. There's a way that the poem looks, which is saying something as well, but I'm not, I'm not going to attempt to unpack that because it just all it feels a bit beyond me. But yeah, if nothing else whether that close reading is useful or not, whether it helps you get closer to that poem or not, hopefully listening to this has alerted you to the existence of Brooklyn poets and their workshops. Anyone can sign up. And also to A Quiet Passion. Find that movie. Watch it. It's so good. It's so, so good. Those are my tips for you on this sunny Melbourne day. Thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you next time.